Turn in your Bibles, if you would, uh, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. I suspect that anybody with a passing familiarity with the New Testament is familiar with this most beloved of all uh, passages, uh, certainly in Luke's gospel, of all the parables, perhaps even in the entire Bible. It's one of the most familiar, one of the most loved uh, passages. And we're going to take two uh, sermons to look at this. We're going to look at the first two parables um, today, and then the third um, next time around. Uh, It's rich enough uh, to cover at least two, if not 20, uh, sermons on this uh, passage of God's Word. Read with me then, beginning at verse 1 through uh, verse 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she is found, that he calls together, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I've entitled this sermon, The Love of God for the Lost. And continuing in the series on uh, Christ's parables found in the Gospel accounts. And I would ask you by way of introduction, where does missionary, where I'm sorry, where does missions and evangelism begin? And where does a motivation for mission and evangelism begin? Well, there are places where it most certainly does not begin. It does not begin in what is perhaps the most common method in Christian pulpits in North America today, and that is with laying a guilt trip on people, making them feel guilty to get out and do evangelism. That's not where it begins. However, neither does missions evangelism or the motivation for mission and evangelism begin with the Great Commission, as great a commission as that is, found in Matthew chapter 28, with which I suspect most, if not all, are familiar. where Jesus declares that all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto him, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, etc. As great as that commission is, that is not where missions and evangelism begins either, nor does the motivation for mission and evangelism begin there. Nor does it begin with the early Christian church, the book of Acts, and its example of spreading the gospel from uh, Jerusalem to Rome, 
or even with the examples of Christian missionaries, as inspiring as they may be, and they are ordinarily very inspiring. Now, missions and evangelism begins, and the motivation for mission and evangelism must begin with the heart of God. And God's love for the lost. That's where it must begin. Motivation arises when you personally experience that love in your own life and in your own heart. As Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. That is where it must begin. And you see, I mention that because this is Luke's concern in the telling of these three parables in Luke chapter 15. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite commentators on the Gospels, said this, and I quote, All three, that is parables, all three are intended to illustrate the one great leading truth. The deep self of the deep self-sacrificing love of Christ towards sinners and the pleasure with which he saves them. The three parables are as if Jesus is saying, if you would know my feeling towards sinners, mark the conduct of a shepherd seeking a lost sheep, a woman seeking a lost kind, uh, a coin, and a kind father receiving a prodigal son. I have a number of points this morning. I'm not going to outline them for you at the outset. I'll trust you just follow along as I go. As demonstrations of the love of God for the lost that are contained in these verses. And I'm very thankful for heavily relying on Terry Johnson, a friend of mine, Presbyterian minister, uh, in his commentary on this. So I take no uh, credit for its originality. First of all, look at verse 4. The metaphor of the sheep. When, which man, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? The metaphor of the sheep is not flattering. The sheep are not the giants of the animal world by any stretch of the imagination. They are the most defenseless, easily confused, and pitiful of all animals. When they're separated from the flock, they can't fight, they can't flee, they're not very fast, nor can they find their way home. And Jesus says unbelievers are like lost sheep. Our catechism, Hotterberg Catechism, talks about misery. Misery, deliverance, and gratitude. The first section, how do we come to know our misery, sin and misery out of the law of God? We must know what it is that we are to be saved from. And it says we need to be saved, we need to be redeemed, we need to be rescued from our misery. And it likens the entirety of one's lost condition as miserable. The word in the German in which Ursinus actually wrote the catechism is eland, E-L-E-N-D. You might recognize that if you're good with words. It's the word from which our English word alien is derived from. It literally means away from home. And the picture is that an unbeliever is alienated from God. He's away from home. He's like a sheep that has lost its way. And Jesus uses that metaphor to convey to us. And the point 
of Jesus using that particular metaphor is to elicit compassion for the lost. Look at the sheep. Look at how pitiful. Look at how defenseless. Must, must you not have compassion? What one of you, Jesus says, what man of you, if he's lost one, doesn't leave the 99 and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Turn to Jonah, if you will, in the Old Testament. A similar point is made there by God. You may remember Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, all right, Hosea, all right, after the great prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. Now, set the stage here. You remember the book of Jonah, I trust, all right? Jonah is the, uh, the rebellious prophet. God says, go preach against that city in Nineveh, and he says, I'm out of here. <laughs> Nineveh is that way, so I'm going this way, right? He leaves town. He skips town. But God gets him, sends him back on the mission. He sends him to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is this group of wicked Assyrian people. I mean, they are wicked, they are vicious, they are violent, one thing or the other. And you get to Jonah chapter 4, Jonah does not want to preach to these people, right? But he preaches to them. What happens? They repent. They repent. And what's Jonah's attitude? He's angry. He's angry. Look at Jonah chapter 4. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee from Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Now, Lord, take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Look at God's response. Do you do well to be angry? And then he gives him an illustration with the gourd right? God, uh, verse 7, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant that was providing shade, so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a withering, uh, scorching east wind. The sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so to your sin, he asked that he might die. It's better for me to die than live, God said to Jonah. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Yes, I do well am I angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. And check this out. And also much cattle. God has concern not just for the people, but for the cattle in the city. And he has pity on them. And what's the point in speaking to Jonah? He says, you're angry, and I'm, I have pity on them. You're filled with indignation. You're filled with contempt for these people upon whom I had pity. That's a similar point to what Jesus is making here with the metaphor of a sheep. You know what a sheep is like? That's what unbelievers are like. Should you not have pity on them? You know, I don't know about you. I have to confess to you that there are times when I watch the news, and I probably watch too much news, feeds my cynicism, my besetting sin. I get really angry at some of the things I see. I get really angry at some of the nonsense that I see going on amongst people, the immorality, the, the one thing... And, and, should I not have pity on these people that are lost? 
lost. Could I encourage you for a thousand years this afternoon when you go home to just meditate on that one word, lost? What does it mean to be lost? Many of us know a time in our lives when we were lost. Remember the words of that song, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew that it was him seeking me, seeking him. Pity, pity. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that found the wretch was like me. I once was lost, but now I'm fine. Found, was blind, but now I see. Second thing, same verse, verse 4. Jesus uses the found-lost ratio of 100 to 1. Right? What man of you having a hundred sheep if he's lost one doesn't leave the 99 and go after the one until he finds it? The loss in comparison to what remains is so small. If you have a hundred dollars, you lose a dollar. No matter how tight-fisted you are, it's like, well, I still got 99, right? No, Jesus says the one, the one is significant. The great value of one lost soul to God. Think about that. The great value of one lost soul to God. He doesn't say, ah, I got 99. Uh, it's a bad deal, but uh, too bad. No, the one has great value to him. Sinners are too valuable to God even in their lost condition. You were valuable to God. Perhaps you were raised in a Christian home. If you were, thank God for that blessing, never knowing a time when you did not know Jesus Christ as Savior Lord. But for many of us, that was not the case. For many of us, we were enthusiastic about our unbelief. We were excited about our rebellion. We were stubborn in our disregard of God and our disobedience. But even in that lost condition, God considered me and you valuable. Valuable enough to pay attention to. You are valuable to God. Rightly has it been said that the love of God for a sinner is like Niagara Falls coming down to water one flower. The infinite, inestimable love of God considers you so valuable as to pour down the flood of his love upon you. Thirdly, verse 4 again, at the end, the the persistence of the shepherd. Look at, he goes after the one that is lost until he finds it. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Jesus came by his own self-identified mission to seek and to save that which was lost. And he persists. He persists in that. It's the same for the coin. Look down in verse 8. The woman searches for the coin until she finds it. 
The sheep can bleat, but the coin can do nothing. The coin can't find itself. And it's a picture of sinners that are hopeless and helpless. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins. Dead. Dead in transgressions and sins. Hopeless. Helpless. I don't know if you watch prison movies or if you watched anything, but stories of men sentenced to die. Prisoners, San Quentin and elsewhere where they have had capital punishment, when the prisoner that is going to the chamber to his death is brought out of his cell and walks past the other prisoners, there's a familiar saying common to all those other criminals. They said, dead man walking, dead man walking, dead man walking. That's what unbelievers are like. They're dead men walking. And it ain't the night of the living dead. They're spiritually dead in their transgressions and sins. Though they locomote, they're lifeless, hopeless, and helpless. But the shepherd persists. The shepherd persists. One author says this. He says, we're not to think that we sinners can correct our course and find our way whenever we please. The Christian religion is not a religion of moral reformation through personal effort. Christianity is a religion of grace. I cannot find myself. I cannot change myself. I cannot reform myself. I cannot pick myself up by the spiritual boot bootstraps. He says that was the mistake of Pelagius, the nemesis of Augustine. He said you could change if you would. Through moral effort you can believe and obey God, he insisted. Augustine correctly responded, no, you can't, not without the grace of God. Grace must enable, grace must give us eyes with which to see, the eyes with which to hear, the tongue with which to cry out, the heart with which to receive. It's God's grace alone, God's persistent grace and love for sinners. And then verse 5, the joy of the shepherd and the woman. Verse 5. When he has found the sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. In verse 9, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. The lost in God's heart are an object of affection and an object of great love. God rejoices. More on that momentarily. In verse 8, the, univer- the, excuse me, the unilateral nature of the search in verse 8. What woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? The lifeless coin highlights the action of the woman, the woman who is searching She is relentless and comprehensive in her search. If a sinner is to be found, it's due to the sovereign and gracious search of God. The lost sinner is dead, hopeless, helpless, but God is in pursuit. God gives the sun and the rain on the just and the unjust alike because God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. The fact that God delays judgment 
is an indication of his desire, as Peter says, that no one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. If you're a Christian today, it's because God was like the hound of heaven, if you're familiar with that poem. He sought you. You didn't choose him, he chose you. You love only because he loved you first. You didn't decide to believe. God gave you faith. It's a gift of God. Sixth, and perhaps most poignantly, verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And verse 10. So I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Who's rejoicing? Now you might say, well, all heaven rejoices. Uh, That's not what the text says. Look at the text. You might say, oh, 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 I, I see, I see. It's the angels that are rejoicing. Verse 10. That's not what the text says. Look at what it says, verse 10. There is joy before or in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Who's rejoicing? God is rejoicing. Could there be any clearer indication of the overwhelming love of God for the lost than that when one is found, he himself rejoices over the lost sinner that is found? God rejoices. I wonder this morning, is that how you think of God? Is that how you think of the love of God? Is that how you think of the love of God for the lost? Is that not only does he love them, pursue them relentlessly, persistently, at his own initiative, for their own value inherent, but that he rejoices when sinners are found? I, I, I feel so inadequate in conveying this message. God help me make this clear to your own heart. Do you see and understand why J.C. Ryle and why I began this sermon with saying missions and evangelism and the motivation for mission evangelism begins in the heart of God. It begins by knowing this God. It begins by knowing that love for you. It begins by knowing that joy at your salvation, at your forgiveness, at your recovery, at your inclusion. Look at, look at verses 1 and 2. It's very important. We'll focus on this more next time. But why does Jesus tell these parables? Well, the reason why he tells it is in contrast to what we find in verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. 
See the contrast? The religious elite in Israel at the time, what's their attitude towards sinners? <laughs> you can see them. They're in the corner. Can't you just hear them? They're over there saying, does he know who these people are? Does, does he know what kind of people they are? Doesn't he know they're not our kind of people? Doesn't he know they're the riffraff? Doesn't he know they're the scum of the earth? Doesn't he know they're shlemils, shlemazels? Doesn't he know that they're not the kind of people that any respectable, righteous person would want anything to do with? Doesn't he know that? So Jesus told this parable. The rabbis taught that God rejoices at the damnation of the godless. Jesus tells the parable to highlight that God rejoices at the salvation of the godless. Do you see the point? The parable of the lost sheep as we come to a close this morning is to elicit your sympathy for the lost. Like the story of Jonah. Should I not have pity upon the lost? But the coin, the story of the lost coin, calls forth responsibility for the lost. Because though salvation is all of the Lord, God uses means, and the means he uses are you and me. Which is why every week we state our mission statement in the bulletin, equipping members to share the love of Christ by reaching out together to our neighbors in the metro New York City where they live, work, study, and play. If you are here this morning and know this love, have experienced in any small measure, faith even as small as a mustard seed, this love and this joy, then seek the lost and share the love of Christ with those with whom you live, work, study, and pray. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the love of God in Jesus Christ, and you've never experienced that joy, perhaps God to you is a frowning God. Perhaps God to you is a God who's not happy with me. Perhaps God to you is a God who's distant, detached, dispassionate, far off, could care less about me. That is not the God whom Jesus Christ reveals here. I can only pray that you get to know him this morning. And for now, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would uh, impress your word upon our hearts, that you would compensate for my inadequacy and inabilities to uh, press this word home to your people, and that you would use us, even us, when and where and how you will, to share the love of Christ with those that are lost. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen and amen.